Hi, my name is Greg Fraser. I'm the DP of Dune, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Greg Frazier, Director of Photography for Dune. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me again. Clearly, there is an enormous amount to talk about with Dune. It's it definitely was the high, the most highly anticipated film of the year. I know that it's been getting rave reviews. Everybody's obsessed with it. It looks amazing. There's so much to discuss, and we'll get to it all in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to mention MZ, Empowering Filmmakers. They're sponsoring this episode today, as well as to encourage you to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, what a movie to be part of. You have had a run. Wow. <laughs> My God. We had you on uh, a little while back, a couple of years back for Rogue One. And it's just, I mean, your career is just skyrocketing and for good reason. But still, there has to be a point where you sort of pinch yourself and you're like, wow, this is, this is pretty wild. <laughs> what? You know, the thing is that every, every job that I do, though, not disagreeing with what you're saying, but every job that I do, I seem to focus just on that job or I, you know, I don't see it as a bigger picture. But yeah, now that you've mentioned it, it's like, yeah, the last few years have been a bit fun, haven't they? Like I've got the chance to do some, play some in some very cool universes and, you know, play with some very cool characters and some very amazing directors and producers and actors. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a great run. I've, I've loved it. Do you ever have a little bit of a craving to go and maybe do like a small indie or something really kind of low key, low budget, just to almost cleanse the palate in a way and and sort of reground yourself. I, I've, I we've had some DPs come on and talk about that, where they sort of want and are craving just something, something simple and different, and something that doesn't have so much pressure. Well, you know, I don't actually put a line in the sands. Like, there's, for example, we're talking about Dune right now. To me, you may see a big over massive film I, I see a series of characters and i see a, a director that i'm working closely with and i see sort of intimacy when it comes to characterizations and yes we got to go to an amazing country like jordan for example uh, abu dhabi we got to shoot on some amazing sets and have some of the trappings of big film but for me ultimately it comes down to i walk into the stage every day in the same way i would if it was a small movie or a big movie and I approach the characters in the same way and I approach the director in the same way. Um, it just happens on this one. We had maybe more days and we had, like I said, a slightly larger scope. But having said that though, I'm always wanting to do good story, you know, and, and sometimes good and great story comes in the form of sort of small, more independent films. And sometimes those stories come in the larger studio-based films. It just so happened in the last few years that the, the, the latter has been more prevalent. And, yeah, I'm, I'm totally open to whatever is my next movie, it, you know, it comes down to story, it comes down to characters. I think that sort of approach and that mindset is what is making Dune so enjoyable to watch and so well-reviewed critically because it's grounded. Like, it, a movie like that that takes place in a completely different world, a completely different time. There's no, you know, there's not a lot of reality to it. Yet, the characters are relatable. There's a groundedness to it, and I think in the cinematography, you let us feel like we're close to these characters, which is certainly a decision I'm sure you're making, and something that makes it feel more relatable, which you know I think is important for a movie like this. You know, one of the things that. Uh, as I was moving up the ranks, let's say, let's go back to sort of what you're talking about in terms of larger films. As I was getting larger and larger budgets, what I was noticing was that that there was every opportunity to move away from what intrinsically existed back in the day when I was shooting small movies with intimate characters. Like there was every opportunity to move away from those those things. And I resisted that. And I think directors that had asked me to shoot with them and that I had agreed to shoot with uh, also resisted that and also saw maybe in my smaller work uh, that intimacy. So it is, it is something that, you know, I, I go on to sit every day with the same expectations. You know, like I, I'm in the very fortunate position that I don't have to market and sell a movie. You know, mm -hmm. like I don't have to market it to the masses. I don't have to worry about if there's 
X amount of you know bums on seats, for example. But of course, as a filmmaker and as a um, creative person, I want people to see what I've done. So it goes without saying that it's, it's lovely to have people see what uh, see what I've done in conjunction with 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 my director. But um, that's thankfully not my primary motivation. You know what I mean? I, I have yeah. I, my motivation comes from a place of sort of pure pure characterization. I read a quote from you, and I think it was Hollywood Reporter. It might have been Variety. I'm not sure. You say you don't take on projects. Um, you don't. You don't take on projects. You don't get nervous about. Fear is always part of it. I loved that quote, and I wanted to just dive a little bit deeper into that philosophy, and ask you why. Why is it that you are only taking projects that you fear? Well, otherwise it gets boring, doesn't it? Like it's it's a long time we spend making films and. You know, uh, it, it's, they're generally not down the road from my house. You know, generally they're a bit of a trip away. There's maybe one or two films that I've done in my past that has been a nice get up in the morning, drive my car, park my car, get out, like the classic sort of more nine to five existence. But for the most part, every other film I've done, it's it's a big experience, as in it's being away from home for a long time, be it in, in India with Lion or being in, in London with, with Rogue One or Budapest with Dune. Like it's kind of, it's always a long time away. And that then takes its toll on your family, which means you've got to get a lot out of the film. Like it's got to give back to you as a creative person. You know, you're contributing not only your skill, let's say, it be it production design, cinematography, sound design, whatever that might be. You're not just contributing your skill. That film also has to give back to you in order to warrant the pressure that it puts on other things, family, uh, health, being, you know, like it's making a film's tough. Making a film is not an easy experience. So you need to go into that film with the right people. And I'm thankful that, you know, my crew who we used on Dune um, is a very, very close crew. And I get a lot out of that relationship with them. Um, but also the, like, I want to be inspired every day to, to be growing. To be, to be learning because, like, there is a lot to be learning from in this industry, but there is a position that I, I think filmmakers can get stale and you can do what you did in the last film or the one before and just keep repeating the same playlist. So I, that to me is not the most enjoyable part of the process. For me, the most enjoyable part of the process is learning, stumbling, making a mistake, hopefully no one will notice my mistake, like, and then carry on the next day as, as a you know, head held high, pretending that I know what I'm doing. What scared you about Dune? It, it's, a, it's a big film, like you've just said. Like, it's a big film. It's a big story. It, you know, um, the, the pressure from doing a film like Dune is that there are a lot of people with high expectations of this film. This is what do they call this? The unfilmable film or the unmakeable film or something like it's a big statement to make for somebody towards people who are about to go and make a movie. you like, there's all this <laughs> it's not a great going, way to start a project. <laughs> no, like it's a terrible way. Cause you instantly you're, you're on the back foot going, Oh, am I, are they, is that right? Are they right about this? Like, how do I approach this? And so thankfully working with Denis though, like Denis, Denis knew exactly what this film was, you know, like, this is what inspired. I mean, I, I I would work with Denis on anything, frankly, because he's such a master craftsman and a master filmmaker. But for this, he knew what this film was. Like he knew what these characters are. Like he knew from from day one. Didn't necessarily didn't necessarily mean that he had it wasn't open to idea either. Like he was very open to ideas. But he knew from day one what this film was. So you know, I, again, I, I've 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 got high expectations for, for my work and I've got high expectations for the work that I do with someone like Denis. And, and it's not like Denis hasn't worked with some of the best cinematographers in the world, right? So it's like it's, it's, he, he, knows what he's, he knows cinematography. So there's a bit of a pressure there. Does that help, though, when you're working with someone that knows cinematography so well? And, like, are you, yeah. does it almost make you better? Or do, what do you think that helps? How do you think that helps? I'm a firm believer in the idea that that relationships with film in filmmaking, everybody grows off each other, right? So what I have learned off other directors, I'm able to bring to this movie or other movies, and perhaps what Denis has learned from other filmmakers or the cinematographers, he is bringing to this project. So I feel like 
I'm experiencing the culmination of Denis' multiple film experiences, the multiple DPs that he's worked with, you know, and I can draw upon that and I can, and I can take the, the experiences that he enjoyed with those cinematographers and, and learn from those experiences. So mm-hmm. I, I am a firm believer in that, and, and that, goes, that goes all around. It goes with me learning from my focus puller who's just worked with another DP on another project, from a gaffer, from a grip. Like it's, this is one of the enjoyable things about filmmaking is that it's hopefully just a series of learned new experiences and everybody's learning off each other. Um, there's still the, 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 the hierarchy. That doesn't change. Like, um, you know, my, the, my director is still the person on set who is going to call the shots and have the final say. Yeah. But, you know, if, if I can learn from what he's saying about a particular scene, the way he sees the scene, maybe he did that on another film in the past or maybe I've done something in the past on another film that I want to tell him or her what, what's happening. Like, so that, that, that communal group learn is a, is, a, is a great part of the job. I want to start talking about the look of Dune, the lighting, the camera choices, lenses, all that fun stuff. And I want to begin with a question that we got from Instagram from uh, Domingo Shake. Uh, he asked, how, do you, uh, how did you get that gorgeous soft top light? How many layers of diffusion did you use? Um, yeah, I mean, when you watch this, there's a softness to this in such a harsh environment that is kind of unique. Like you almost expect when you're in the desert to have so like a really hard, heavy, heavy, heavy light because that's what you would expect in our world. But in the mm. Dune world, it's, it's soft in a way that almost draws you in. And it's, I saw it throughout the entire piece. And uh, I think that's a great question from Domingo. So thank you for the question and curious what your answer is. Well, I mean, it's hard to be specific because that's, you're right. Broadly, there is a certain soft light. And that comes from, uh, it's motivated by the fact that inside the residence, inside the interiors, there's no direct sun. The, 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 the place is built not to have direct sun because the sun's harsh and the lack of water. And like, so if you were building uh, buildings in that environment, you would make sure that, yes, you don't maybe don't have lights inside, but you have light wells. So you might have big openings that get the sun, but they bounce through these light wells. Mm. And so that was the kind of motivation is that everything that's inside is soft. It can be directional as in it's got edges to it. In fact, it should, but it can be soft edges and soft direction. So how many layers of diffusion? That was a very, <laughs> I can't tell you because every, every situation was different, but there was clearly an overriding level of softness that we were aiming for that, yeah. that we either kept adding diffusion to. It's very much like some of these sets, these are some of the biggest sets I've shot. So, so going back to what you said before about scale, yeah. Um, and size, like I, I walked in to this particular stage in Budapest, stage six it was, and I, it's 140 feet. It's a football field long, the whole wow. thing. And the set was in one long corridor, one big open wide corridor. Yeah, I, can't, I, I won't lie to you and tell you that I was like, yep, got this, no worries. I know exactly what I'm doing here. I know how to light it because I didn't. I had no idea how to light it. And we did test after test after test. We, we did mock-up pieces. We got lights in from London. We, like, so between um, Jamie Mills, my gaffer, and Christian, who's a Hungarian gaffer, we just tested every conceivable light source to come up with that right feel because there's a certain direction to it, a certain sharpness to it, but it has to be a soft direction as well. So mm-hmm. it was very much trial and error, very much trial and error. Where'd you land on it? Were you going through all well, those tests? Well, we used LEDs. We used uh, color-changeable LEDs, either um, uh, digital Sputniks or, or, or cream sources or, or um, space forces, I think. Uh, uh, but we ended up using directional LEDs. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a big fan of directional LEDs that have focus and have spot to them, that have mm-hmm. sharpness to them, despite what I've just said about softness. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing about that is you can then soften it slightly. You can then add a degree of softening to it, and then it has that nice roll-off. My concern with soft lights, soft any soft lights, is that you don't have any opportunity to sharpen them up. So there's a very fine balance. My eye's quite sensitive to, to lights that are too soft. It mm. feels too manipulated or too too lovely, too pretty. You know, mm. like there's a certain – there's got to be a little bit of 
edge to it, something. There's got to be a, something to it. So we learn in different ways, different degrees, different different diffusions and you know, but, your, but your preference is to have that kind of like LED Fresnel, I guess, for lack of a better term, just something that you can that you can shape. And then, are you throwing that through diffusion? Are you bouncing it? No, I'm, I'm going through diffusion most of the time. I would love to bounce it a lot of the time. I, I, book lights are fantastic. Yeah, but there, I don't think we had the level or we had the amount of lights to do that. And also, mm-hmm. I think when I found when I bounced it, it didn't have the direction that I wanted. So. They're not they're not Fresnels though, because unfortunately there's only a couple of LED Fresnels, like the Orbiter. And sure, yeah. The, the Orbiter didn't exist um, in its current form when we were shooting. So, you know, the lights we were using, the digital Sputniks, uh, primarily, they have they have a degree of focus. They're not focusable, okay, but they have a degree of sharpness to them. If you point them on a wall, you can see where they fall off. They're not just some innocuous kind of blah light. They have a they have a degree of, sh- of sharpness to them. So because of that degree of sharpness, then it's up to me, but how soft I make that. So, you know, me and my team, of course. Sure. But, but then I can, I'm not, I'm not stuck with a, an automatic softness that is built by the manufacturer. Now, that makes sense for your interiors. How, how are you handling your exteriors? Well, we, thankfully, we had a, a, a great relationship with our host company, Photochem, and Throughout the testing process, um, Denis and I kept going backwards and forwards about what LUT we should be choosing and because there wasn't a LUT that, that existed mm. that looked good for us. Denis felt that the exteriors needed to be hazy, a little bit, not cloudy, but haze, as if there's like a, a low level of um, sand in the air that just yeah. lingers the whole time. And that's, that's great, except you've got to then get sand in the air that lingers the whole time, in which case you've got to have wind machines and you've got to have you know, all the, all the materials to do that. And thankfully on the back lot in Budapest, we did have that. So when we were shooting in Budapest, more often than not, um, we, we created wind and that wind was constant. Um, just again, it's to help sell the idea of this barrenness of this, this kind of harshness of, of, of the place. So that helped a little bit, but then in combination with this particular lot, which was, you know, the highlights were, 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 were pulled down, but they were bleached out. It, it was a tricky luck to get because we did a bleach bypass test where, you know, some film was shot bleach bypass in the past. We did a test on that with footage that we'd already done. And it felt like we were, we had a look to it. It felt like it had a bleach bypass look. Mm. So Photochem was able to kind of weave their magic and take the highlights that we liked out of the bleach bypass and put it in a in another LUT that had low light uh, capabilities. So, um, sorry, low, low end capabilities. So we made it a Frankenstein um, LUT, which served our highlights, which helped soften the sun a little bit, yet lifted the blacks and the um, the mid-tones up. So the so shadows and the mids were lifted a little bit and the highlights were brought down and then softened. So it ended up kind of giving us a ballpark of where we wanted to be. Yeah. What was your inspiration visually for this? I mean, there's, you know, classically, there's you have the books. You also have the movie in the 80s. So yep. there is sort of a perception of what Dune is and what Dune looks like. So you have that to contend with. What were you using to kind of inspire your visuals? I mean, we didn't look at the film. So that wasn't a part of our, uh, our world at all. Um, uh, I was using Denise's ex- explanation of how he felt this world as my inspiration. Mm. Like he, he, he described it very vividly how he saw it and how to achieve that's a different story. Like how one thinks of something when they read a book versus how you achieve it. Can yeah, like what did, he, what did he say to you? He didn't want the sand to be yellow. Needed to be a, a, a like a, a, a slight sandy golden, but not, too saturated, yeah. and he felt like he wanted the skies to be hazy, you know, not dissimilar to the haze outside my window right now in Los Angeles. It's that that June gloom that carries over to November in, in Venice Beach where it just stays a little cloudy and a little kind of hazy for the whole day, even though there is sun behind there and you can feel that sun, but it feels a little kind of a little hazy. Yeah. So, um, you know, he'd seen, I think he'd been scouting with Patrice in Abu Dhabi and and um, 
Dubai and seen this kind of little bit of, bit of haze in the air and went, ah, we should, we should work on getting this look, which is easier said than done because if it's not hazy and it's not cloudy, it's hard to make that look hazy and cloudy when it's not. Yeah, especially mm. outside. I mean, inside, maybe yeah. you can control some haze, but when you're outside, mm. what do you do? So, well, my God. Wind machines are good. Yeah. Uh, wind machines are great. Uh, lack of polarization. Sometimes in, when I've shot in the desert, I've polarized to try and get the deepest, darkest, bluest sky that I can. Mm. In this case, I did the opposite. If I did polarize, I polarized and blew out. Huh, that's interesting. Mm. So were, were you, were you when you say lack of polarization, you just absolutely no polarizer on the lens whatsoever? Or like- uh, it, it, it varied, it varied. I mean, again, I'm the- Part of my problem is my brain is Swiss cheese when it comes to individual setups. You know of what I course. mean? Of course. Yeah. But it was a long right, time ago. It was. But I can we tell you ask right now, a lot of our guests to remember back to when they filmed these things. But <laughs> so if your memory's not 100%, don't worry. But I can tell you right now that if I was doing it right now, I would ask for a polarizer and I couldn't say, is that making it better or worse? And if it's making it better, I'd put it in. So, yeah. you know, I'd obviously polarize it to it's like, that's too blue, too dark, but maybe the, the angle, maybe the direction we're facing, maybe we're facing towards the sun. So maybe the Polaroid doesn't, doesn't do any darkening. And in fact, it lightens up the sky. So it was a combination of trying to just ride the, the edge of um, this look that we were trying to create. Um, I want to talk about the camera package and this kind of unique film transfer process. I don't know if I have it 100% correct here, but it sounds like you shot digitally and then transferred to film and then redid it back to digital. It sounds like there's, there's quite, there was quite a path that this film had taken in the transfer process. Can you talk to us about that process and kind of how you got there? We, again, early in the discussions, Danielle and I were talking about what is this film? There's always the, the, the big picture, like this is how it feels. Yeah. Then there's like, okay, Welcome to the land of reality. Let's, yeah, exactly. We have to film this thing, right? Um, so how the hell do we film this thing? Like, what is it? Is it film? Is it 65? Is it digital? Is it, is it, is it anamorphic, spherical? Like, what is it? Um, so we went out to the desert, uh, just not about two hours out of LA. There's some great sand dunes out there. We shot some uh, 65mm IMAX, 35mm film, Alexa. It was a bit of a smorgasbord of, of cameras. Um, we shot a couple of stand-ins, doing some walking, moving around. And then we went to, there's a brutalist uh, dam, I think it's the Sepulveda Dam in Los Angeles, and shot some stuff there as well. Tested out uh, diffusion, like going back to that point about things being diffused, like using, uh, like I think there's uh, black silks that I was a few friends of mine have used that looked kind of interesting. So I started to get a feel for what diffusion might work yeah. and what wouldn't work. Um, and then we got the footage and we, we cut a little, you know, five minute piece just, to, and we watched it and we um, assessed what was the, the feel that we were after. And had you asked me before that test, what I wanted to shoot, it would have been IMAX film, 35 mil anamorphic for non IMAX. Um, a lot like, I guess what, um, you know, what, what, what Linus used on recent bond and what, what Hoyters and, and Nolan have you, Chris Nolan have used. Like that, that package for me felt good, like just in theory. Um, but in practice, we looked at it and, it, and Denis went, oh, this is not right. This is not, this is too nostalgic. His words were, it's too nostalgic. And what did like, that mean okay. to you when you heard that? Too nostalgic. Well, it meant that we were doing a sci fi, but without all of the sci fi gag. Like we, there were no blinkies, there were, you know, no chrome robots walking around. Like, you know, there was no, computers in this world like it's, it's not how this world works for very deliberate reason yeah so a lot of the design sort of looks a little bit ancient and brutalist and simple They're like you know if somebody had said to you this is something set in an alternate universe ten thousand years ago you'd kind of believe it because there's very little technology yeah so i think his reaction and agreeing with him was that in that respect um film made it look a little bit dated. Whereas the digital tests that we did had more of a the feel that he was he was kind of after, but it was still a little bit sharp and a little bit digital. So in that case, we realized that to to create that softness, again going back to the softness thing, 
if we went out to film, we would then take the edge off the digital. So in combination with the lenses that we chose, T-stop we shot them at, the diffusion we used, and then the film out, we kind of created this sort of soft, soft, soft world, not as harsh as, as, yeah. as pure digital. So the camera that you chose, what, which camera did you end up choosing? We shot with the Alexa LF. Okay. All right. So you did the Alexa LF and then you did a 35 millimeter transfer? So we did. We tested, all, we tested 65, uh, IMAX, 15 perf, 8 perf. Uh, we tested all of the op op options, ended up feeling that 35 mil, uh, the, the Interpos, I think, Jupneg, or again, this is where I'm, I, I, I look at the, the footage, we agree on something, and I forget the next Yes, it's out of your mind. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I should really become more au fait. But there are, there are articles that, that like AC Mag are doing and, and that are more technical in that, that they've spoken to, to the post house. So I would highly recommend to get into the, to the, to the weeds of what that is, is to, is to listen to the words of, the, of Dave Cole, my colorist. Yeah, we, and we'll, we'll search for a couple of links to those stories and throw them in the show notes if you guys, for, for those of you out there that really want to get technical with it. Um, but it's just an interesting process nonetheless. So when you got this back, what about it gave you that feeling of like, yes, this, we found it. This is it. Well, I, I'd seen it before. I'd done the test before a number of times, not for any film, but I knew that this was a technique that was lingering and was possible. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody had used it on a film before that. I think, I, I believe Photochem might have done something with Soderbergh a few years prior. Um, anyway, I can't remember exactly, but not an entire movie. And when we looked at it and tested it, there was a sh one particular shot of a sunset that was clear as day, no pun intended, mm. what the difference was. It was obvious. This one really? shot of the sunset, and it became so clear that what this film, what the film does, and again, I'm not, I'm not dismissing pure digital here, or nor am I dismissing pure film, because sometimes the film digital debate can get a little, like religious almost, where people are kind of going, "Oh, you're dissing on digital, you're dissing on film." It's like it's not the case. It's just for this film, the what the film did was it softened the edges of the digital, and it gave us something that film acquisition couldn't give us, and it also gave us something that uh, digital acquisition couldn't give us. Let's take a moment and talk about MZ empowering filmmakers. Now, MZ is all about educating the filmmaking community, and that's what we are here at Go Creative Show. So it's perfect for us, and it's the best place to go to learn all about things like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And you can find out more at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. Now, their courses, first of all, we've got things like Advanced Editing in DaVinci Resolve, The Art and Technique of Film Editing, uh, which is taught by Tom Cross, who's the editor of La La Land and No Time to Die, among others. Uh, and that brings me to my next point, which is it's not just about the courses, it's about the educators, which is so important. And we're talking about educators that are working in the field, they're at the top of their game, like Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, and it goes on and on and on. Best part about it is you can become an MZ Pro member and get access to all of it, all of the hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education. You can buy individual courses, though, and regardless of what you buy, you get 20% off by using the coupon code GCS20 at takeout, at uh, checkout. Takeout. I'm hungry, I guess. GCS20. So check it out for yourself. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, MZ, empowering filmmakers. I want to talk about the camera movement and some of the focal lengths. You can't watch this film without the word epic coming to mind. That's like all you think about as you're watching it. Every single shot feels giant. And what I found unique about Dune is I mean, you see this a lot when you're dealing with superhero movies or any sort of sci-fi or just larger than life movies always have kind of a grand epic feel. But I think what Dune did so well is it brought in that humanity. It allowed the viewer to really experience these environments with the actors. And I'd love to talk to you about the camera angles, uh, focal lengths that you chose, kind of have that balance between epic and intimate. We... Where we, when we were with the characters, we tried to 
find the balance between uh, being too long lensed and being removed or being too wide and being in their face. So the LF, the large sensor on the LF uh, allows you to use a mid lens yet be reasonably close to your actors. Spherically, I'm talking about, um, and anamorphic, I guess, too, but spherically you could be close, which means that you're doing an IMAX sequence. It's fantastic because you're able to be in here, but you're able to be on a, on a mid lens, but you're able to be close. To me, the, the, the proximity of the camera is integral. You know, it's why, you know, I, I love Chivo's work um, that he's done with Inaratu and he's done with like, a lot of his work, actually. It's so there. You can feel that. That's that intimacy is so. So you're so close as a viewer, and so in this case, you know, we, we were not using those lenses, but we were wanted the intimacy. We wanted to be able to be close. So there are times with Timothy um, where he's experiencing, you know, spice um, episodes that we're able to get nice and close to him to be that intimate. Yeah, and also feel the world around you know that again i know some some directors that have a tendency towards 35s 32s 27s 25s because what they do is they feel that but then also they can feel the world around and they're not just in here so we found that those focal lengths gave us what we needed where we could exclude the background enough but not totally i think those large shots the intimacy, the intimacy in some of these scenes is, is just fantastic. You really can be drawn in by the characters. But the shots where you are so wide, it's so large scale, and our characters are just little itty bitty in the scenes, those are the ones that really make you understand and feel this sense of like, there is nowhere to go. Like we are, we are stuck in the middle of nowhere. And it, it gives you this intrinsic kind of, you know, fear for them, for yourself, just this idea. That's like a nightmare world to be yeah. in the middle of the desert, knowing that there's all these, the, uh, oh, what are they? Oh, the, this, I want to call them snakes, the worms, the sandworms. sandworms. Just, just the fact that you're able to create so much fear in those super large shots and that vastness, I thought was just really interesting. And love to talk to you about kind of the way you approach scenes like that, where your characters needed to be isolated. Well, I think the way to do that is obviously you've had to have set it up properly with with characterizations but also that you're you're creating that scale there's that one particular shot of Paul in front of the sandworm which was a very very clearly storyboarded shot that was you know very much a planned shot mm. but it's it's creating small figures like it's creating small figures in big environments and like there is a certain sweet spot to an angle that you've got to get otherwise it doesn't feel big enough or like you've got to see the whole thing, but you've got to be far enough back that you see that that character. So there's no there's no hard and fast rule about a particular distance or a size. It's just a feel that one gets when you keep moving back, keep moving back, and go, okay, now they're too small because I can't feel them. So do you get lower and see more up, or do you bring them close to the camera? Or there's a, there's a there's a balance there that's struck. In that particular circumstance, with the sandworm and you have your character and you know you need to be you know you need to be far far enough back to get that scale right but also you're working with visual effects so there's a little bit of an unknown there how did you approach that scene to you know turn out the way that it did i mean you've got to work with incredibly good vfx supervisors which we supervisor which we did um paul who is incredible and then denis who obviously uh, is also incredible you know, I, I seem to recall framing that up not being quite wide enough, and then them going, "No, no, you, that's that sandworm's only twelve stories high. This should be forty-five stories high." Mm, mm. So it's like, okay, can we get back any further? Um, and I think there are times we ran out of room when we're on the back lot. There are times we to create that scale, we actually physically ran out of room. In which case, that's when our post friends help us because they can shrink people down, and you know, there's a bit of discussion involved, but. But I love that too. Like for me, when I watch films, I love to feel that scale. And often that scale has to occur um, being down at ground level, you know, often, not always. Again, it's not always the case. But like we're being grounded with those characters. We're on the same plane as those characters as opposed to being up in a chopper, for example, um, you know, overlooking him and the sandworm. That kind of wouldn't have felt right. So it felt right being on his level. 
Um, you know, the time to be in a chopper would be when they're in choppers, you know, when they're in that chopper and that's their story. I loved those, by the way, the little like dragonfly choppers. Oh, <laughs> just yeah, yeah. So cool. I love that. Um, all right. So back to the sandworm and the visual effects. I'm curious because there is a bit of unknown when you're working with visual effects. Were you able to see anything on set? Were you able to actually like see any wireframes or something? I know, you know, there's, there's a way to kind of create a world in Unreal Engine and put sensors on the cameras and kind of see the visual effects in real time. Did you explore yep. any of that for this film? It was a little bit of that. I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't set up fully like that. Um, we, we did not shoot on a volume. So we, we didn't have that opportunity to see that in Unreal, for example. Mm -hmm. um, there were some times, yes, we had the, the iPad, you know, where we could see that, that, that sort of the early stages of, of what a set might look like. Um, but that's all, it was all, it's all very early days for that technology. You know, like yeah. it's, 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 it, it, it is getting better. And I'm, I know it's getting better because I did Mandalorian. So I know, yeah. you know, where it can go and I know what it can do. Uh, it's not, it hasn't filtered through the entire film community yet to create that level of technology. Like we're, we're straddling two worlds or three worlds now with filmmaking. There's traditional filmmaking um, with the addition of some VFX. There's very VFX laden production process. And then there's fully VFX. So we're, we're sort of straddling a number of different worlds right now. And um, on, on Dune, we sort of, we were a little more traditional. There were t definitely technological advances or technological things on the set, but, um, you know, we did get to view some sets in 3D and like there were some definitely technologically some good things in there. But I think the, the show was a bit more grounded technologically, which, to be frank with you, I think is the advantage that it has yeah. because it feels it's got all the advantages and benefits of, 2021 technology yet we've we filmed it a little more traditionally you know what i mean so you've got this kind of this best of both worlds thing where the, the, the technology is able to the the, the the film's being made like a traditional movie but it's just being augmented by by current technology i mean i i feel like that's the best the best of both worlds i agree and i think that's what kind of made it feel i'm not like a huge superhero movie person i mean i went into dune knowing nothing about it i didn't read the books i didn't see the prior movie i just i i went into it just because i was excited about it the trailer looked amazing i knew it was going to be a big a hit for sure and i focus more and i'm more drawn in by the characters really for really anything that i watch i i love i mean who doesn't like great special effects but Special effects alone can't hold my attention for two and a half hours. And right. I feel like you guys did a great job of bringing in and inserting those really human moments. In particular, there's a question that came in from, again, Domango Shake on Instagram. Great questions, um, Domango. Um, the question is about your having confidence to let an actor's face stay in the shadow. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting point. It's not just the decision to do it, but the confidence to make that decision, um, actors want to be seen, you know, <laughs> like directors want to see actors. They pay a lot of money for them and they want them to be seen. And I think there's a lot of situations in Dune where it's so dark that you, in some cases, can't even see the faces. I'd love to talk to you about that, how that decision was made. Um, and maybe a little bit about the confidence it takes in a director of photography to do something like that. Sometimes there, there's an issue Audiences are very um, savvy visually, I think. Like even people of an older generation, like my my parents' generation, I think even though they don't have the Instagram and they don't have the all the social media, they are very savvy when it comes to uh, to visuals. They don't know what they don't know. They don't understand why something doesn't feel right or what doesn't look right. So therefore, I would hope that I am the visual, sorry, the conscious conduit for their unconscious visual path when we're sitting in an environment we're trying to create a mood that mood is as big a part of a character as the, the character itself you know like if you've got something important going on that needs to be underplayed i mean look at the godfather i mean look at marlon brando like in the godfather yeah like look at the darkness in the eyes i mean imagine if he's sitting in front of a refrigerator and like brightly lit like looking like you and me right now <laughs> 
the believability factor would just disappear, you know? I mean, still be Marlon Brando, still be amazing performance, but suddenly, like, you're not as immersed in the characterizations. So I, I think having the confidence to know that that your characterization and your, your darkness is going to be helping uh, characterization at times. I mean, I would also hope that, that it's not oppressive darkness too. You know, there are times where you've got a little glint in an eye that's creating darkness but enough to see and feel into a character. Now, that's obviously a debate, isn't it? It's obviously like a, a, sort of, it's a debate where someone can go, mm, not enough or too much. And I have it all the time, you know, with, with the director. If you're standing on set looking at a monitor and you go, I think that's a bit too dark. What do you think? I go, yeah, a bit more fill in the eye. Suddenly fill in the eye can help, but it can also change the mood and change the, the tone of the scene. Yeah. So it's, it's like skirting a, a fine line between being uh, helping the scene feel a certain way and, 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 and helping it be distractingly dark. To that question about confidence, though, are you in situations where people are saying, you know, I think it's too dark and you're saying, no, this is, this is the right thing to do. It's like, do you ever feel like you're, um, I don't know, kind of those debates on set, like you said, do you ever feel like you're the one pushing for the darkness? Thankfully I'm surrounded. I've been able to be working with directors who have a very, very good sense of taste. And you know, a film set's not a democracy. Ultimately, like it's not—it's not. Let's vote on if this is dark enough or something. It's, it doesn't come down to that. It's like I, I feel like this is good. Do you feel the same? No. Well, let's discuss. Let's get it feeling right. Let's yeah. get it feeling so it's good. Um, more often than not, more often than not, actually, in a lot of cases, it's the director pushing to go slightly darker because again, they understand mood and tone. Yeah. Um, and it's a fine, it's such a fine line because you, like, how, how is one viewing this? Like, you know, I remember there was, I, I did a film, I did Zero Dark Dirty a few years ago and the end of Zero Dark Dirty is dark. That's the whole point is it's dark until you, you get night vision. And I walked in and that lifted the entire movie in the theater. So I'm watching the entire, well, I didn't actually, I, I had to leave, but I, the entire first three quarters of the film was all lifted to account yeah. i'm assuming for the end of the film so i couldn't watch it because to me it destroyed any mood or any kind of any feel that that you get watching the film so there's a fine balance and it it takes you know takes a great collaborator director wise to 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 kind of work with levels of darkness obviously the whole film can't be like that you've got to have moments of clarity sure. like otherwise it's, but but you've got to then know when to pick your battles so you walked out of the theater you were that pissed I wasn't pissed i couldn't watch it yeah it just it wasn't what you intended no it wasn't the film that i made i don't want to watch that it didn't look good simple like yeah. it was again i'm the conscious manifestation of a subconscious audience like i didn't get into the characters like I, i've watched that film now 50 times i yeah. love that film I couldn't watch it because it was like, uh, there's no mystery or not mystery. There was no, there's nothing to it. I was just, it wasn't good. So how do you feel about the Dune being released simultaneously on HBO Max as well as theaters? I mean, people have the option to quite literally see this on a giant screen or their phone. I mean, it's, it's kind of a brave new world now with cinematography and filmmaking. What is your thought about that? It is a brave new world. And Denis has expressed the you know, again he has been the conscious manifestation of the subconscious audience and and he has expressed his concerns about that and i i 100 stand by his concerns and what he said um you know there are people gonna be watching this film on the subway you know or on the tube in london or on their way to work and they watch it bit by bit over the over the course of 17 journeys you know mm. i mean who who am i to stop that i can't um I just have to do the best that I can knowing that we have made this film for a particular way of viewing it first and foremost. And then everything from that point is ultimately a small as a compromise. Yeah. Do you make any accommodations at all while you're filming or not even accommodations, but do you, do you even consider the fact that this was going to be released on HBO Max and watched by a lot of people on TV simultaneously. Did you even know at the time? 
No, that that was different timing that came okay. out at a later point. So, but but the point's valid about like because it's always going to get released on some at some point. Format, yeah, isn't it? exactly. So you, you always have to assume that that your your beautiful detail that you spend hours working on that's is going to get seen by that that lone passenger on the subway during his seventeen times he's watching it, you know, to finish the movie. So there is that rel there is that relevance. Um, but again. If you get, if you make a movie or light a movie for the lowest common denominator, then we know what we're going to end up with. It's cl- very clear. Yep. So you don't, you, you can't. I think the overwhelming reaction out there, and, and yes, I am sort of among a group of filmmakers all, most of the time. Um, so maybe my opinion is biased, but I think for the people that I know and that I've spoken to and just listeners of the show that have seen it on HBO Max, it, if anything, it has inspired them to then go and see it in the theater as well. I, I feel like that was really my experience as well, is I, for convenience, saw it on HBO Max, but then immediately was like, this is going to be so amazing in the theater. <laughs> like that, I, I almost feel like it, in a strange way, I think it excites the viewer even more to go and see it the intended way, I guess, quote unquote. I mean, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. I mean, listen, I've got three kids. I know how hard it is to get to the theater. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I can't blame somebody for not being able to draw themselves out of the real world and get to a theater, to an IMAX theater, you know, which is, there's not that many of them around. So I, I get it. And I'm no, I would never dismiss somebody's choice to do that. Um, it's just, I know what, how the best way to view it is because I've, I've seen it. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it it's going to be what it's going to be ultimately. And I hope that people take out of the movie what they want, regardless of how they watched it. What was the most challenging scene for you? Um, there was a whole series. Of, often a scene is made up of a whole series of problems. You know, like it's not just <laughs> one problem. As it, Like the ornithopter, the, the sandworm eating the, 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 the spice harvester, for example. Like yeah. that's, that's one scene. It's written as one scene. But that was a series of problems. Like, how do we do the um, series of problems needing solutions? How do we do the the flying work? Like, how do you have them flying over this watching? Like, and and again, how do you do it? Do you do it on stage? Do it on the backlight? Do you put it on a gimbal? Do you do you do it against blue screen? Like, how do you actually do that? Um, you know, we when they land, they land in the desert, and when they land in the desert, you need infrastructure. Because infrastructure is we need a crane to be able to turn this ornithopter around and dro- and lower it down. Mm. So therefore, we need to be near a big uh, base of you know um, to be able to get construction cranes in in the sand dunes in the middle of the desert. How do you get a construction crane into God. the sand dunes? I don't know if you've ever tried driving on, driving on sand, but it's really hard. So it, there's a whole series of problems that would occur that you would never think about when you're watching the film. Hopefully. Right, you'd never ever want to know how you got the crane in to be able to lower this ornithopter, to be able to have Josh Brolin and Timothy Chalamet jump off it and then jump back on it and have it rise up again, spin around. Like they they were a series of problems that we needed to overcome. So over the course of uh, three or four different places to shoot that, you know, we shot backlight, we shot um, we shot in in a gimbal on a hilltop, we shot. In Jordan, in the sand, we shot some stuff in Abu Dhabi. Like it was solved over a course of, um, you know, a number of different ways. So that that, that, was, that, that scene was spread across all of those locations. You're saying? Uh, yeah, for the most part, we we very much over every way you could possibly imagine. We shot that. Now, now I have to know how did that actual. That big giant, um, oh, what's it called? The spice. Um, oh, wh- spice, the spice harvester. The spice harvester. Mm-hmm. That final shot of it kind of being sucked in. Where did you ultimately end up doing that? Okay, so that was done in Jordan. Now, and the reason was is because we we put the actors up on the the, the landing craft, the landing uh, section of the, and we had to then mount a camera out, and we looked past. Obviously, we, there was no spice. There was no sandworm and there was no spice crawler and we couldn't get up to the, the height that we wanted like that heights at you know two or three thousand feet or something like that yeah um so we could ne- we could never do that but what we could do is we could get the ornithopter up on a crane so the crane lifted up this ornithopter 
we had a hard mounted camera that was giving us the right angle. And then we just turned the ornithopter. So at least then the, the light moved as if it was banking around the, um, the VFX. But this is where, like, the shot's pretty much in camera, except for the, 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 the spice harvester and the, and the sandworm. Yeah. So help, hopefully then the VFX then look more real because, again, it's, it's all in camera and the light moving is all real. But then, so then all the effects have to add. I don't say all that. I don't say disrespectfully. They have to add a lot. But all, all they're really concerning is with is laying over that action on the correct tone because we're shooting against sand. Yeah. Were you on real sand for most or all of this film? Yes. I think that just makes such a huge difference to be. I mean, it, it obviously there's visual effects, but it feels so practical. It really does. When you watch this movie, the effects just feel real. The, the, I mean, it has a very different color. I mean, sand has a very particular color, and it's very, it's very tactile, and people move in a certain way on sand. So for the most part, if they were on real sand, we were on real sand. So, mm. you know, wherever that was, Jordan, Hungary, Abu Dhabi. Yeah. There's a question here from... Um, I think it actually may even be our producer, but it, it's something that I was obsessed with when I was watching it. Those floating circular lights. First of all, I want them. That, yeah, they're cool, right? I, I'm like, I love these lights. <laughs> that that floating circular light. Talk to me about that. It's just such a simple. I'm sure it wasn't simple to to make and to film, but it's just such a small detail that I think makes those interiors look so unique. Um, especially when you're sort of blending between the sci-fi futuristic feel, but also that kind of like old, is this 10,000 years ago or 10,000 years ahead? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, talk to me about that. So those light, obviously when it, whenever you're talking about how to light a night scene, right, there's always going to be the discuss, the, the um, discussion about how it is. Like what, what sits in this room is it a practical light like and what is that practical light how does it sit there is it on a stand is it hanging is it is it just there in the um in the book there is reference to a light that moves through the residence with the with the characters and that seemed like a really interesting idea although like you said technically not not easy in any way shape or form because you're moving lights as if they're weightless around with actors. Mm. So um, we we ended up rather than putting lights just static, we put lights on moving moving stands th that would move with the actors. Obviously, when it's a still scene, like um, you know Jessica and Leto in bed before they go to sleep, those lights are still because they're still. There's no need for the lights to be moving around. Sure, but but they when they move when they need to move they move. So we just went, well, they just move, don't they? Like, Were they remote that. controlled? Like how are you how are you moving them around on set? It it varied. It depended on the shot. Like um there were some big wide scenes that we shot where we had them on dollies and tracks and crane arms. We had some decent sized crane arms. And there were other times we had some rigging into the ceiling. Um and there other times we had it on a on a dolly. I know that, for example, there's a shot um where the the um they're walking out the mother superior and the um and jessica are walking out to her ship and it's a profile shot and the light's moving with them we put that on a dolly and track and put the light on there covered the dolly and track in in the solid and then just walked walked with it and then uh you know covered it with fog and post-production painted out any gack so we, there are different ways of, of doing that I love that. Now, the last question I have for you is from a listener, Helicopter Films, wants to know your approach to night exteriors. It's so weird. We get so many people mm -hmm. in our audience when we get questions, they all want to know about night exteriors. That's That seems to be a thing that is, um, you know, it's it's a big question in the Go Creative world and seems yeah. to be, you know, I'm sure it brings some unique challenges to it. There are so many different ways to shoot nighttime that it's a, it's a good question because, like, you can't just say, oh, it's night desert. Like often, often a scriptwriter will lazily do evening desert, and evening is like this. Well, what is evening? Is evening dusk? Is yeah. it just after dusk? Is it blue light? Is it night? 
is it dead of night? Like what is evening? And evening often for a screenwriter is it, it's a it's illuminated nighttime. Like again, it changes in script to script, but often it's an illuminated nighttime. Um, so in this case, we had to come up with a consistent night look for this movie. Um, and there's two different types of night. There's the night that takes place on the battle, uh, the the um, landing pad, uh, as the place gets attacked. Yeah. And then there's night in the desert. So there's two different types of night. One that you can motivate with fire and explosions and burning palm trees. But then when they land in the middle of the desert, there's no motivation. So, of course, we can say anything. We can say there's two moons or there's a really bright moon or there's, you know, there's no night. Maybe it's just always an internal dusk or whatever. Um, but we ended up sort of approaching that in a visual way of flat ambience. And so, therefore, we had to figure out ways to shoot that. Now, most of the time, we shot that sort of uh, in shadow, so like late afternoon or dusk and dawn. So, for the most part, we shot dusk and dawn and then grade it to look like nighttime. Mm. Mm. That, that, yeah, the night scenes in this are interesting. And you're right, you really can kind of do whatever, uh, you know, in a way, because you are, you know, thousands and thousands of years in the future in a different world. But I think. More often than not, the choices were made to have it feel relatable in a weird way. Yeah. yeah. There, there are, there are the unfortunate, and Dan and I even talked about going, well, maybe there's two moons. Maybe there's two, two shadows. We're like, okay, well, let's explore what that would look like. And it was a good idea in theory, but uh, in practice, lighting with two shadows just looks like really bad lighting. It looks like really bad stage lighting. You yeah. know? And, um, and you can get a light out in the desert to light an actor, that's fine. But what happens to the rest of the desert? Like you need thousands upon thousands of lights to light the entire desert. So we had to come up with a consistent approach that was going to not uh, hinder performances, that wasn't going to be like, okay, sorry, act- actors, you can only be between here and there because there's a crane there and there's a there's a there's a musco there and a balloon here and like we did. Sometimes you can trip over equipment, you know, and and I find that. If you can come up with the right premise without having to trip over the equipment, then I think that's a better result. What did you end up going with? I mean, we just dusk and dawn for night, and uh, day and and um, and shadow afternoon. Yeah, shadow. Yeah. Obviously, we're all on stage interior, like interior ornithopters. Nighttime, we're able to light those um, because we're on stage. But but anything that was taking place outside, we had to do that sort of for real. Wow. Well, the unmakeable film is no more, apparently, that you you broke that curse. <laughs> yep. The film is absolutely fantastic. I know everybody listening to this and watching this right now has seen it for sure. And if you saw it on HBO Max, I encourage you, please go to the theater because uh, the experience is just so much different. And really, the intended experience is in the, uh, in the theater. So, Greg, and, and hunt I can- out, hunt out IMAX too. Hunt out IMAX if you can. Yes, good call, good suggestion. Um, you're so fun to talk to, Greg. Like you're just so great on the air. You're really good at explaining, you know, your motivations and why you're doing things. So I really enjoy speaking with you, and I'm already looking forward to your return to the show. What are you Thank working you, on man. next? Don't know. Don't know. There's a few things in the pipeline that are due to come out. Um, don't know. I don't know. It's it's a very interesting next couple of years, I think. So yeah. Well, there's a couple things I'm not allowed to talk to you about. But- <laughs> But I think we all know (laughs) out there listening, but we really appreciate it. So please, please come on back. You're a lot of fun to talk to. And uh, I know our audience loves you when you're on. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. All right. I want to thank Greg Fraser, director of photography for Dune, for coming on the show. How great of a guest is Greg and how much we learned today. I really appreciate all of you guys for listening. And of course, those of you that ask questions, great questions. We really, really appreciate it. I also want to thank Connor Crosby from ignitionvisuals.com. He is a producer for me at Go Creative Show, but he also produces projects for my production company, BC Media Productions. So he is embedded in all the things that I've been dealing with over the past few years and does a great job. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. I also want to encourage you all to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
uh, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to know what's up with me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.